listening to Culture Call, a transatlantic conversation from the Financial Times. I'm Griselda Damari Brown in London. And I'm Lila Raptopoulos in New York. Coming up on today's episode. It's very easy to just kind of disavow the nastiness of mainstream political rhetoric. The more complicated thing, which I think is, you know, particularly incumbent upon white men of privilege, is to think about how those voices are actually inside us. Today's guest is novelist and poet Ben Lerner, who just came out with an extremely unique book to very wide acclaim called The Topeka School. Uh, Grizz, why don't you tell everybody why we were excited to have Ben on the show? Yes, Ben Lerner is one of the best, most highly regarded living American writers. When he publishes a, a new book, it's, it's a really big deal. It feels like an event. And there are people all over Instagram wearing these sweatshirts that have the name of his new book on it, The Topeka School, which is quite funny. <laughs> it feels like a kind of the social media stuff going on. Can I just say that there's nobody on my Instagram wearing <laughs> The Topeka School? <laughs> It's a small corner of Instagram, I should probably say. (laughs) (laughs) A dusty bookish corner. (laughs) It's a very cool corner of Instagram. (laughs) So I would say his following is a kind of cult literary following rather than a mainstream one. Although it does feel like that might be about to change. Like we're on the cusp of him becoming well known in a different kind of way. You know, if you haven't read his books, this feels like a time where, you know, it's good for him to be on your radar. It's only his his third novel, but it feels like a slightly different one. Basically, he's a writer who's doing new things with the novel and sort of pushing at what it can be. And I think that's really exciting to read. People talk a lot about how it's sort of a book for the Trump era. Mm. Do you think so? It's interesting. That's definitely been a narrative around this book, that um, that it feels topical. And undoubtedly, it does. I think that's not all that it is. Uh, It's set kind of partly in the 1990s in Kansas and partly now. And so it's kind of being read as a novel about the origins of particularly white male rage um, that's kind of fueling Trump and fueling populism today. It's about the origins of kind of where that came from. Yeah. Where was it born? How was the interview? I saw a photo afterwards and you guys looked like old friends who were up to no good. (laughs) I loved this interview. Um, We ended up having a pretty deep, kind of unexpected conversation. I found myself revealing more to him than I had meant to do. Uh, and he and he ran with it. Um, it got, yeah, it got kind of personal in a funny way. Uh, what do you mean by it got personal? Can you say any more? I do often think with interviews, how honest should I be? Like how open? Right. And I think, I think here that the risk paid off because I heard him saying things that I haven't really heard him saying before. Um, it felt like a really memorable conversation. And it, and it also gave me new insight into the book itself. Like, I now want to go back and read it again, having spoken to him. Amazing. I can't wait to hear it. Before we get into your conversation with Ben Lerner, can I say that it was a total pleasure to hear from all of our listeners on Twitter and on email over the past couple of weeks. Thank you to everyone who shared voice memos with us about your experience with astrology for our next episode. My piece about astrology came out last week and it's in the show notes, but we're delving a lot deeper in the next episode into the parts that there wasn't space for in the piece. And our astrology episode includes having one of New York's most prominent astrologers in the studio. Um, She's going to tell us who she thinks is going to win the US election, how long (laughs) Brexit will last, and crucially, most importantly, (laughs) most importantly, how compatible we are as co-hosts. 
Yeah. So fingers crossed. (laughs) So if you have been thinking about astrology, there's just enough time to add your thoughts in. We want to know basically why you think there's been a recent resurgence, whether you've had any unique experience with it, if anything weird has happened, if anything really accurate happened, really inaccurate happened, anything like that. Uh, take out your voice recorder, speak into it right now, email it to us at culturecall at ft.com, and then press play again on this episode. <laughs> I have to say, I have been really impressed by the quality of the voice notes we've had. They're so thoughtful. I mean, it, it does, it's funny, it does feel a little bit like we're building a kind of little club. Um, I actually met someone, Lila, at a wedding recently. We were talk- I was talking about what I was doing. She knew the FT and she asked me if I knew the people who did the Culture Call podcast (laughs) which was great so shout out to Kimmy thank you for that Um, were you like intimately (laughs) I know them really well (laughs) like too well Um, that's amazing yeah so you know I feel like if this club is growing it's actually an amazing opportunity for us to ask listeners for their recommendations so we're putting together an end of year episode on our cultural highlights from 2019 And we'd love to know what yours have been. So what are your cultural obsessions? What do you recommend to all the new people that you meet? What do you kind of, what book do you thrust into their hands? We want to know what these things are. For sure. Like what songs can you not stop thinking about? What weird YouTube (laughs) clips are you like watching on repeat? Any of that. Mm. Um, In both cases, we're going to include a selection of your memos or written thoughts really uh, in the show. Great. Okay. Lila, I want to know what you've been up to. So a few things. Uh, first, as you know, a few episodes back, I interviewed the chef Danny Bowen of Mission Chinese. He's Korean. He was adopted as a baby by an American family. He felt that he never really fit in anywhere. And it gave him this freedom to really push things forward in the food world, um, specifically in Sichuan cooking. So I wanted to see what that looked like in action. And he's running an event series with the restaurant reservation platform Resi. Uh, and it's called Danny Bowen and Friends. Once a month, he throws a dinner with a different artist and they collaborate together on like a multi-course feast. Hmm. And then he puts some of those dishes on the regular menu for the rest of the month and every month it changes. Um, And this one was Saves the Day, who is the pop punk band of my adolescence. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, they had things like sourdough samosa naan and jalapeno pickled peanut noodles with Sichuan granola. It was sort of... confusing combinations of things that tasted like they should go together. So that was cool. Uh, And it all came out family style. So like sharing plates and things. Sharing plates like a, yeah, like with a bunch of strangers. And what was it like? It was, it was cool. You know, it was a little hard to get a drink and they played a show, but it was sort of shoved next to the kitchen because there wasn't really space anywhere else. (laughs) But the food was awesome and it mostly worked. And what I liked about it is just that they were trying something, you know, it's like a it was like a work in progress. It felt like they thought, all right, who knows if this will work? Let's just see how it goes. Um, mm. And I like that. I like that spirit. I don't think that happens enough. You know what it reminds me of is these things that they do in London called scratch performances at the Battersea Art Centre, where it's like you see a work in progress that isn't fully polished or fully finished. And then the audience at the end sort of give their views. Cool. Um, and it's cool because it feels like kind of a privilege to be let in on the process of the creation and to feel like you can kind of feed into it and be useful in a way. Yeah, that's how this felt too. It was sort of like some of these dishes may work, some of them may not, but like we're all in it together. (laughs) Yeah, and like you were there at the beginning having your say, which is nice. And I've seen some quite cool people doing things. Like I saw Kate Tempest, who's now kind of big performance poet, 
Uh, and she wouldn't do Scratch now. She's way too famous. But it was just her and a few people in this room. And we were all just saying what we thought about the piece. That sounds great. So, Grizz, I know you've been working a lot. And in the last episode, Esther Perel told us that there are better questions to, so how's work or what's new? Um, and one of those was, what have you been thinking about? What's been on your mind? So <laughs> what have you been thinking about? What I've been thinking about is work. My head is completely in work. Um, Lila, I'm like that anxiety emoji with all the teeth. That's basically <laughs> me at the moment. Um, working on the next gen package, which I spoke about uh, in our last episode, has been really interesting. The idea of thinking about the next generation, the upcoming generation, which is what um, the stories that I was working on were about. Seeing the response to those stories um, kind of below the line and on social media and you know, people emailing us. You know, it feels like the idea of the generations not understanding each other is something that's kind of in the in the zeitgeist at the moment. Yes, everybody's talking about OK Boomer. Yeah, if if anyone listening types OK Boomer into Google or or Twitter or whatever, you'll see it, and it's it's become like this kind of stock response to <laughs> yeah. an older person who just doesn't understand what you're saying or isn't listening. Be it about climate change or gender pronouns or tuition fees. And also it feels like a condescending response to a condescending statement. Like finally, Generation Z has something that they can say back that will annoy boomers as much as boomers' questions annoy Gen Z. Yeah, I mean, it's basically the complete erosion of like real conversation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, and the New York Times wrote this piece. The headline is, OK Boomer marks the end of friendly generational relations. Um, <laughs> so that's depressing. Yeah. Um, but there is this amazing clip of this young um, female politician in New Zealand called Chloe Swarbrick. And she actually says OK Boomer to this guy who kind of interrupts her or is heckling her when she's making a speech. Mr Speaker, how many world leaders for how many decades have seen and known what is coming? In the year 2050, I will be 56 years old. Yet, right now, the average age of this 52nd parliament is 49 years old. Okay, Boomer. Uh, current political... <laughs> um, it's kind of amazing. She does it without missing a beat. Um, and the response to it has been kind of hilarious. I think there's a narrative that millennials and Gen Z are like ridiculous snowflakes who take offence at everything. Um, but really, boomers are now taking huge offence at the phrase, <laughs> OK, boomer, sure. which has been kind of gratifying to watch. Yes. Um, but, but it shows how kind of deeply entrenched this battle is right now. So what do you think? Do you, do you have no hope for <laughs> generational relationships in the future? I don't know. I mean, I'm... I'm an optimist and actually I feel like in my own life sort of and now I'm talking about kind of real life being offline I think some of my most important relationships are with people who are not the same age as me um I'm thinking about my three-year-old goddaughter who's amazing and she says things that are so wise um and <laughs> makes me think about life and I'm thinking also about Tom's grandparents who are in their 80s um and have such a different perspective and such a different life experience to me those relationships are so important it makes me feel sad when people, when people can't see across the divide. I think, there is a re I think there is a real lack of communication sometimes, even mm. in the language that we use. And I think people shut down. They don't want to listen uh, to, to what the other side is saying. That social media exacerbates things. It makes things that maybe are a problem seem like a huge problem and that there's something that's unbridgeable about it. When actually, of course, it's bridgeable. Yeah. Of course, we can talk to each other. Right. So the thing happens and then the sweatshirt gets made. And then 
the cut writes about it mm. and then Maureen Dowd writes about it in the New York Times and then it becomes like bigger than just the meme. So I guess the next steps are the not all boomer movement and then the reaction to the not all boomer movement and then who even knows? Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to yeah. shut this can of worms. I'm going to decapitate those worms um, and that's going to be it. Thank you. Let's close the box <laughs> and move on to the interview. Let's talk about Ben Lerner. Uh, there is a worry, I think, that his novels will be so clever that they're inaccessible or there's so much about his own life that they can feel sort of self-indulgent. That's the reputation that he can have. Um, and I think we both felt a bit like this when thinking about having him on. But people kept telling us that the Topeka School was really brilliant. Uh, so we read it and it is. Yeah, okay. So I'm going to I'm going to tackle the self-indulgent label first, I think. Ben Lerner writes autofiction, which is fiction that's mixed with autobiography, hence the name. And we've had a few authors on the podcast uh, who who do this kind of writing. Sheila Hetty, Teju Cole, Amit Chowdhury um, are all examples. And and these people are these kind of writers are often charged with narcissism. So I wanted to ask Ben directly about this. Um, and I did. And his answer was really interesting. So his answer made the choice seem actually not narcissistic after all? Yeah, it was like a really robust defense of choosing to use yourself as kind of raw material um, and, and the political reasons for doing that. It was really interesting. Um, but yeah, so the, the Topeka School is his new book is is different from his first two novels. Um, it's less sort of in his own head. So I thought I would just say a little bit about what those two novels are like in order to explain why this one is different and why, in a way, this feels like a good point to be sort of speaking to him in his writing career. Mm -hmm. His first book, Leaving the Atocha Station, is about an American guy in his early 20s called Adam Gordon. And that's the same name as the protagonist in the new book. He's a really funny character. He's an aspiring poet. He's living in Madrid. He's smoking a lot of weed. He's going to the Prado Museum. He's mm -hmm. thinking about life thinking about art. He's pretending to understand Spanish, although he doesn't understand very much. Um, he's trying to impress women. Um, he's basically based on Ben Lerner himself and the sort of facts of his life. Ben Lerner did actually go to Madrid. And yet he's obviously a literary creation um, who's both kind of ridiculous and relatable. In that, like, we all know that guy and he's kind of annoying, but also... We yeah. all know that guy. <laughs> yeah, we all know that guy, but also maybe like we are that guy a little bit. Like there's parts <laughs> right. of him where he's like constantly thinking about what he looks like um, and how he appears to other people that I think particularly at that age is like an obsession. Right. Um, it was for me anyway. Um, <laughs> the second novel is called 1004 and it's about the same American poet, although he's actually now called Ben. So he shares the same name as, as the author himself. Um, and he's dealing with the surprise success of his first novel, the one I was just describing. He's still thinking about life and art. Um, he's now perhaps a little bit less self-absorbed. Um, and he's also thinking about, he's thinking about becoming a parent and sort of what it means to be a decent man. So he's, he's growing up, basically. As well as seeming like he's in his own head, Ben Lerner has a reputation for being really brilliant and very brainy and maybe a little pretentious. Like I used to think of him as sort of a younger Jonathan Franzen type. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. I think I, I now realize pretentious is completely the wrong word for him. But 
in, in those first two books particularly, you're basically seeing everything through the perspective of Ben Lerner. So it's like he's guiding you through his thoughts. And his thoughts are basically like mini essays on art often. Um, <laughs> I actually really liked these because I liked reading his thoughts about art. But I think I, I completely understand for some readers it, that was too much. But the Topeka School is really different. I mean, there are mm. multiple points of view. You get to know his parents. You get to know other characters. Uh, it doesn't feel as in his head. Yeah, it's, it's a completely different novel, like you say. And basically, we go back to the beginning. So it's the same character, um, this male poet. Um, he's called Adam Gordon. And what we do is we go back to his childhood and his adolescence in Kansas. Um, we hear what he was like as a teenager from his mom and from his dad. We hear about their relationship. So he's kind of looking outside himself more and he's grappling with some really kind of big themes like anger and therapy, both his parents are psychotherapists. Um, and also trauma is a huge theme of the novel. Um, the idea of what we inherit from our parents and our grandparents Actually, lots of the things that um, you and Esther Perel were talking about mm. in our last episode. Um, and it's interesting. So it's, it's about this idea of inheritance, but it's not only inheritance on a personal level. It's inheritance on a kind of wider political level. So as I was saying, how the 1990s in the Midwest kind of seeded what we're seeing today in terms of populism and anger and backlash. Can't wait to listen. Ben Lerner, welcome to Culture Call. Thanks for having me. I want to start by talking about your new book, The Topeka School, because in some ways it feels like a departure from your previous two novels. And in some senses, it feels like the third in the trilogy. You can read it as a more traditional novel, I think. You can read it as a sort of coming of age story uh, set against the kind of backdrop of American family life. I wonder, do you feel like you've written a different novel this time? Or do you feel like this is a continuation of the same project? I think both, because I, I mean, it's very much the third term in a trilogy, but it's also kind of the prehistory of the other two books. The first two novels are very much first person novels, and you're kind of in the head of the narrator. This book is set in the 90s, largely, though it's intergenerational, and it's written from the vantage of different characters. So Adam Gordon here is described in the third person and the first person sections are narrated by his parents. So you get the voice of Adam's mother and father more than you get immediate access to Adam himself. And lots of the reviews of this book have talked about it as being about the origins of the sort of white male rage, the make America great again anger that we see today. Is that the book that you felt you were writing? Was that something you were interested in? I was interested in it for sure. I mean, so, well, Adam is the son of these two psychologists who are at this International Psychiatric Institute. But on the one hand, Adam is very much their son. He's like a star debater. He's an aspiring poet. He's very fluent. Um, and on the other hand, he's desperate to pass as a kind of real man in the masculinist red state culture that surrounds him, which is a culture in which talk, unless you're kind of talking trash, is considered mm. emasculating. Adam's debate coach, who kind of teaches him to weaponize eloquence and who's a kind of proto-troll. Yeah, he's a fascinating character. Yeah, this guy named Evanson, who's, who's very much a figure of privilege, um, is to me in many ways a kind of harbinger of, of a, a kind of architect of the coming right-wing speech. It's interesting that you mentioned the kind of debate coaching because 
there's this interesting moment where the coach is sort of saying to Adam, you know, you can drop in some kind of Midwest slang. You can appeal to these conservative debate judges. It's leveraging different kinds of language for different uses and how malleable that is and how skilled he is on one level at sort of doing that and and having the desired effect. And yet it also feels like language is something he's not totally always in control of. It sort of escapes him at some points. Yeah, I mean, the book is really kind of organized around these different theaters of extreme speech, like the pressurized speech of therapy and which language sometimes breaks down under trauma. Um, high school debate, which in America also has this thing called the spread, where people try to speak as quickly as they can to make as many arguments as possible um, so that the language is totally evacuated of meaning. It's just this kind of speed. And the idea is that the person who's listening can't address all of these arguments and can't even process all of them because there are too many. Exactly. It's just like a strategy of overwhelming your opponent. And it becomes this kind of like glossolalic ritual. It's actually really bizarre to observe. <laughs> I did look at it on YouTube, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I mean, spits flying. People can yeah. pass out. People are gasping for breath. It sounds like the bark of a seal or something. It's really <laughs> bizarre. And um, and also this other kind of speech where like Evanson, the coach, like you say, is trying to tell Adam to be like folksy and to sound mm. populist. And but to think of that not as actually related to any particular content, just as a strategy of manipulating um, an audience. And yeah, I mean, language in the book is both kind of the dystopian element of the book. I'm thinking about the bankruptcy of contemporary political speech and kind of the fascistic regression to a language of unreason in which facts don't matter at all. But there is also for Adam these like glimpses of poetic possibility in those moments of extreme speech, like even in the spread when he sees these kids, you know, reducing what's supposed to be an exchange of ideas to this weird cultic practice. He also sometimes, as you mentioned, feels totally taken over by the language. And in those moments when kind of language is just coursing through him, when he's less delivering a speech than a speech is delivering him, as mm. he puts it, he also kind of makes contact with like the originary force of language, just the mundane miracle of language as such. There's a kind of flow state that he seems to enter. Yeah, flow is the right word for it, I think. Which is a creative act. Exactly. I mean, it's, it, and it is, I mean, Adam is an aspiring poet, and but the poetry in the book largely is not about Adam writing poems. It's about him experiencing glimpses of poetic possibility in these largely busted forms of speech, like high school debate or his kind of embarrassing um, freestyling with a bunch of white middle-class kids, right? Where it's like a travesty of appropriation. But there is still, uh, for all its embarrassment and all of its problematic political nature, he does still he does still have an experience of flow. And flow is an experience of the possibility of the social, right, of language being bigger than just what you wanted to say. It's interesting, though, that you say the social because Adam is really learning how to use language in a social way. And there's an extremely funny opening chapter where he's on this boat with his girlfriend. He's facing the other direction, looking out at the lake. And he's talking and talking and talking. And you get the sense that he's talking for a very long time. Um, he turns around and she's nowhere to be seen. She's sort of departed the scene. And I mean, this was very familiar. This was, mm -hmm. you know, I, I kind of grew up with the British equivalent of these, right. of these boys. Um, but you weren't on a boat, so you couldn't escape. <laughs> there was no jumping into the, into the lake, no. But it was funny because, um, I mean, this is kind of a, 
this is both a confession and a kind of meta point, but um, until this autumn, I hadn't read any of your books. And the reason that I hadn't read them is because there was a guy who used to say to me, mm. you have to read Ben Lerner, this brilliant autofiction. You have to read him. And this guy was basically Adam. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was thinking when I was reading this scene, this is exactly the reason that I haven't read this until now. Mm -hmm. and there's, a, there's a kind of irony in that. Yeah. Part of why the book starts with that scene, I feel like, is that it's not that men didn't talk in Kansas or that men didn't talk. It's that, it's that language is as you know of course can be used to block communication as much as it can be used as a way to test what part of consciousness mm. is shareable and that kind of masculine performance of a wall of sound um which is familiar um certainly to to every woman i have ever known <laughs> um is 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 kind of a, a theme in the book you know like what are what are the modes of communication that are actually about obfuscation or self-curation and kind of erasure or, of the erasure, listener. or the erasure of the listener right i've kind of ended up writing these books that are often about the uses and abuses of language but i think the mother jane is an example of a mode of listening that um counters the kind of weaponization of eloquence or the kind of wall of sound blather of men that can be designed to shut down the possibility of exchange and you're right the the other two novels um I read them and enjoyed them hugely, yeah. um, which was funny to me because it showed both the kind of off-putting way in which this man was telling me about them, yeah. but also the kind of wall that that was building without, with inside of me. I was like, well, I don't want to read them if, right. that's what, if you're telling me that they're good. Well, it, it's, yeah, no, I, I, I totally understand. I mean, in a way, this book, when I talk about this book, you know, being kind of the prehistory of the other two novels, one of my hopes is that it kind of makes a little bit more complicated, like Adam's use of language or anxiety about language or his kind of anxious performances mm. in, in say, that first novel, Leaving the Atocha Station. It's interesting because, as you say, it's that thing where when you find out about someone's childhood, um, they're almost always more empathetic mm -hmm. because of that. You, you understand where someone's come from. You see their prehistory. And like you say, that's kind of what you're doing here. Um, and, and the mother, the character of Jane, is very important, I think, in this. I mean, I think she's kind of the central character in the book in a certain way. You know, the book is a, is a history of the voice that's writing it. It wants to ask the question, what makes up our voice? And Adam is testing out lots of different voices. You know, the voice of the troll debate coach, the voice of the tough kids, the voice of the therapeutic vocabularies that are around him because he's the son of these shrinks. Adam, the older Adam, is writing in his mother's voice about her very messed up father. So Adam is not only contending with, with the mother's voice, but wondering what part of his grandfather's voice is in him. So it, it, the, I think the book kind of tries to move between like Adam's struggle to think about what makes up his voice, what he can edit out, what he wants to honor, and then to bring that in relation with kind of the national political discourse mm. about like, you know, when when kind of what Trump's speech is and, and how it infects our private lives. I mean, it's very easy to just kind of disavow the nastiness of mainstream political rhetoric. The more complicated thing, which I think is, you know, particularly incumbent upon white men of privilege, is to think about how those voices are actually inside us and how they have to be not just disavowed or like, you know, um, a self-righteous statement of being woke on Twitter, but to actually kind of deconstruct um, the way that our own voice is necessarily caught up in those xenophobic, misogynistic, mm. racist projects. And how did it feel to you to 
kind of go through that process of, to some extent, recognizing those voices in yourself or, or through the through this character that you've invented. I mean, I, yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, this this was a hard book to write. It was very, it was very intense to write in my parent in versions of my parents' voices. I mean, they're very fictionalized, but they're also they make a lot of contact with the real. The, the, the thing that made the book writable and what was also the most difficult thing about it is that I realized that I have more access to my parents' experience of me as an adolescent than I do <laughs> to my own experience as an, as an adolescent. Like the reason I write the kind of teenage Adam in the third person is because I actually couldn't write those sections in the first <laughs> person. I mean, I could write them in a kind of funny way that would just mm. be kind of making fun of like what a moron I was or Adam was or whatever, but I couldn't kind of hold the emotional content. And it's important that like he is the idiot who's talking on the boat and he's also someone who's vulnerable and sensitive yeah. and, and that he, you don't feel like he's a one-dimensional teenage boy that we just point and laugh at. Right. I think that's important. Right. And I and I, I think I didn't know how to make him multidimensional if I was trying to write in the first person. That was very liberating when I realized I could kind of write from the parents' perspective and kind of throw their voices. Um, and it was also really like weird and mentally disorganizing to kind of write as versions of the parents. Because, mm. I mean, one thing is it does is that you have to kind of, it changes your relation to your parents. Like it makes you realize the degree to which they were just like two people who didn't know what they were doing, but were doing their <laughs> yeah. best, you know? Mm. When you, be, when you, you know, when you have a kid, you don't have to have a kid to realize this, but you realize it, I think, with this particular kind of force you realize like there really are no grown-ups like I always thought like it like when I became a father I would like that would be like an arrival at some point of maturity and in fact you're just as you know it's just a continuation it's just a continuation <laughs> except you have this like little person looking up at you who you're responsible for to me it's funny that it's been read so much as a book about uh white male anger and about kind of Trumpism and and obviously it is those things but I also read it as a book about parenting yeah. about being a family and being a teenager yeah well also like when you become a parent i mean maybe this is true becoming anything like if you become a you know a teacher or you become a journalist like as soon as you have that identity you open your mouth like you're a father and you open your mouth and all this like father stuff comes out <laughs> you know that's like not you it's like just like you're it's kind of ventriloquizing yeah it's a kind of ventriloquizing and i think like when i became a father and all this father stuff started to come out. Some of it great learned from my own father, some of it not so great. You know, I made new contact with this very kind of obvious but profound fact that the voice is a tissue of contradictions, that the voice is a corporate thing made up of many voices, that there are all these voices coursing through mm. us. And I and I think parenting is like a really special case of that. Because you're not just talking to your children, like your whole family history is talking to your children and you have to kind of figure out what patterns you want to honor and what patterns you want to break. And that's what this family is trying to figure mm. out. And I think that goes also to the way that you use time in all of your books. There's this kind of really fluid sort of slippage between memory and kind of living in the past and living in the present. Yeah. And here it seems like there's the kind of adolescence in Topeka and adulthood in Brooklyn and not to give any spoilers but towards the end of the novel when the older character returns um that kind of happens in the writing more and more in a way that it's within the same sentence kind of shifting between past and present is that how you experience kind of memory well, what are you doing with those sentences yeah I, I mean it is how I experience memory it's also I mean in terms of thinking about this in part as a book about having kids 
I mean, the other night I was, I was talking about it kind of like when you look at like a bonsai tree, right. And, and you are looking at it from above, obviously, because it's this small thing. Mm -hmm. But since it's this fully grown miniaturized tree, you also kind of imagine yourself under it looking up. So like part of the pleasure of looking at a bonsai is like this, this sense of two scales mm. simultaneously. Yeah. I feel like when you have a kid, I mean, I, I don't know what it's like for everyone, but for me, having a kid is kind of a similar experience because you're like looking down, literally looking down at this kid, but you, and you, and you are like a grown up now for better or for worse. But at the same time, you're remembering what it was like to be a kid with a whole new level of vividness. And, right. and you know, parents consistently talk about like their childhood memories return with great intensity. So I think being a parent is kind of like existing in two orders of temporality at once. You know, you're, you're, you're most adult that you've been yeah. to date. Um, and you're also a kid again. Mm. And and you kind of have new access to both of those languages and their contradictions. So I feel like I wanted to figure out a literary form that could kind of have that structure of both being in the present and in the past. And I think it's very relatable, though. I think even I'm not a parent, but um, I have this kind of ongoing joke with my husband that when we go to his house, which is the house where he grew up and his parents still live there, he sort of regresses into being a teenage boy. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's because of place. It's because of going to that place is like going back in time. And I think that happens. I think that's quite a relatable feeling. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's not specific to parenthood. That's just a special case of it. And part of it is that, yeah, because because memory lives in places and memory, li memory lives in language, you know. And that, of course, happens on like a familial or individual level or like, yeah, like the regression when you go... <laughs> when you go home. Um, and it also happens on a political level where like so much of like right wing politics is about this nostalgia for a time that never existed of like, you know, which is a white nostalgia. It's a white fantasy of a kind of unchallenged hegemony. So the, the challenge is to be is to be able to be alive to the echoes of the past and the present without some kind of like sentimental nostalgia for a world that never existed that one thing novels can be really good at showing is the degree to which the the present is always shot through with the past. There are always pockets of the past and the landscape of the, of the present. You know, there are sci-fi novels that are very explicitly about time travel, but I think in, in reality, the hard thing would be to point to a novel that isn't a work of time travel. Yeah. Because I feel like that's how we experience life. Yeah. We are remembering things all the time that aren't happening at this very moment. Yeah, and it's what a landscape is. I mean, a lot of the standardization of the landscape, you know, where everything becomes a strip mall or whatever, or everything becomes a chase bank on every corner is an attempt to kind of eradicate memory. But mm. it doesn't work. Like a landscape is always many different orders of time, you know, combined together. And it seems also like that's part of the way that um, therapy functions in this novel and that, that talking therapy functions anyway um that that there's a there's a theme that's about kind of accessing the past i mean jane for example is an interesting one because she has these quite serious blind spots mm -hmm. um you know related to trauma so i think what i'm interested in is is to what extent you think that kind of self-reflection and self-knowledge is a helpful thing yeah it's a good question because these books i think all three novels i've written are kind of trying to think through the possibilities and the perils of self-reflection like it can become a kind of crippling self-awareness or can it become a kind of liberating you know discourse that opens you out onto the social and the possibilities of collective life i mean certainly like on the topic of time you know i mean i think the basic 
kind of psychoanalytic insight, right, is that we repeat patterns that are unconscious and that to a certain degree bringing a certain kind of pattern of behavior or a family pattern into the light can give us the freedom to break it, right? And that trauma is kind of cast out of time because we haven't integrated it into a narrative. So we just constantly re-experience it as a kind of present. Right. I think I don't have an answer to your question about, you know, like about the value of self-awareness, except to say that I think that's a really sharp observation about one of the questions the book wants to articulate, you know, certainly Jonathan, his father, who talks about how because he thinks he had a vocabulary for like some of the emotional intensity he was feeling, like his attraction to this other woman, like because he could describe it in a meta vocabulary, he thought he was undoing it when in reality he was kind of justifying it and feeding it. And it's one of the key things about growing up as well, isn't it? Self-knowledge and also just knowledge of the world and of your parents and of other people. There's a point in the novel where Adam's parents are fighting and he says that the desire to know more and the desire to know less fought each other to a standstill inside him. And, mm-hmm. he, and he feels like he can't move. Mm-hmm. And that's so recognizable, that sense of, I don't want to know what this fight is about, but I have to know. Mm-hmm. And also, I know, but I don't want to know, mm. or I know more than I know. Yeah. You know, like that, yeah. that, which, you know, is, yeah, I mean, because part of what Adam, the older Adam is dealing with writing this book is kind of knowing more than he wants to know mm. about his parents, about his grandfather, about, you know, like, and. Um, because and knowledge is the kind of burden. It's a kind of burden. You know, there are certain kinds of knowledge that are really difficult to hold. And Adam is trying to figure out what it means to hold the knowledge of like how his grandfather was with his mother or to hold the knowledge of certain marital difficulties for his parents or whatever. And so, yeah, that that's and this is a big parenting question, too. Right. It's like, when do you what do you tell your kids? What do you try to keep from your kids? Um, you know, not just about like your own personal life, but like it, what, like, when do you start talking to your kids about climate change? Or when do you start talking to your kids about like the real evil that Trump is and the real, um, catastrophic threats of the political present, you know, or when do you give them a little bit more time? Mm, when are they ready for that knowledge? When are they ready for that knowledge? And I mean, we're in a way not ever ready for that knowledge. You're known for writing autofiction, as I was saying before. Um, this man who was who's recommending Ben Lerner to me was saying this is brilliant autofiction. How do we stop those men? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I'm interested in whether the reason you write autofiction is to kind of probe this space between fact and fiction and the idea of authenticity. I mean, when, so if you write about yourself um, or a version of yourself, you're understandably open to the charge of narcissism mm. or whatever. But I also think part of the reason I was drawn to work with like materials that kind of resembled my life was because it's a way of avoiding what I think of as a real kind of narcissism, which is the belief that like the white guy can write from any experience, this kind of like universality where like I have perfect access to the minds of everyone. And, and that's a kind of like traditional claim of a lot of fiction that sometimes has made great work. And sometimes I think. Um, makes really irresponsible work. Using a version of myself is also a way of marking particularity and saying like, this is what I have to work with, right? Like I don't have- Saying like, I'm not omniscient. Right, I'm not 
the great American novelist or whatever. I'm some guy. And like, these are parts of my experience that I'm trying to think through and work into significant literary form. I mean, I always, there's a lot of fiction in the auto fiction, you know, um, I, I never like privilege a biographical fact over what I think will make a better book. Like those kinds of facts, I always sacrifice to the supreme fiction of the book, right? Which is to try to make an artwork that has its own truth independent of the way it maps onto kind of, you know, fact or, yeah, or fiction. Yeah. I also think, I mean, I've always just kind of believed like, like this really great writer, Aaron Cunyon said that like the, the stuff about yourself you're most ashamed of is the great material for art. <laughs> it's where you like risk the most. It's mm. where you, you learn something, right? And I don't have any kind of commitment to this thing called autofiction in general, but I think for the kind of themes of these three books, you know, about kind of authenticity and fraudulence, about the way that we live according to fictions and those fictions are subject to change. Like our sense of our own identity is a narrative that is subject to change and reorganization. All of that kind of thematically led me to work with kind of biographical material because it seemed to kind of raise the stakes of those questions and make them more alive as opposed to try to write as if I had no relation to any of the material. And you've written yourself about language and poetry specifically having this being kind of invested with this power and the way that people respond to that. I mean, you write in in the hatred of poetry about how people react to you saying that you're a poet and you say that there's embarrassment, the suspicion there's anger even. Yeah. But I've just generally been really interested in how embarrassment, anxiety, doubt about art, doubt about, you know, what counts as authentic aesthetic experience or whatever is actually really interesting. Mm. Like that's an interesting aspect of the arts. It's not a reason to turn away from the arts because it's a way of saying, what is the value of this thing? It's not a reason not to go to a museum because you have questions about mm. why something's in the museum or what counts as beauty or is it that it's worth a lot of money or what's that? Those are interesting questions. Yeah. And, and there is something anxious about the expectation that you're supposed to be having this ecstatic, uplifting experience in front of a work of art. And often you feel like, oh, I don't think I'm looking at it in exactly, the right way or maybe yeah. I'm not reading this right. Or, you know, you, you talk in the, in the first book, Adam gets so worried about sort of performing reading you know, on the train or whatever, which I think is probably something people think about every yeah, day on yeah. the way to work. And it comes back in this book. It's it, his Jonathan, his father often thinks yeah. he doesn't believe other people are reading. He thinks they're only pretending yeah. to read and performing <laughs> absorption on the plane or wherever. Yeah. And, and also, like you said, it's also you encounter like when you go to a museum or read a book, you encounter the possibility of a disconnect between your individual experience and the social expectation. But that disconnect is very interesting mm. to illuminate, like to kind of test yourself against the social expectations and, you know, who's failing if there's a, a failure there. Is it you? Is it the work of art? Or are the societal expectations wrong and need to be challenged? Mm. You know? Ben, thank you so much. Thank you. Chris, that interview was so awesome. <laughs> It was like I had to rewind and re-listen to get every part of everything that he was saying. He was saying so much in every sentence. What was it like when you told him that you hadn't read him until now or you had something <laughs> against him? I mean, 
I thought that was great and honest and true. I felt the same way about him. Um, and our producer, Lena, said the whole sound room, like, stopped breathing <laughs> <laughs> when you told him you hadn't read his books because someone pretentious told you that you had to read his books. Yeah, sorry about that um, to Lena, our <laughs> producer. I do like going off-piste now and again, um, just seeing what happens. Um, he wasn't making really eye contact at the beginning. He's very thoughtful. He's very serious. Um, and then I made this confession, and it was like something had changed. Um, it, he he was enjoying himself. Um, and afterwards, he told me that I'm by no means the first person to tell him that. Um, you know, I'm not the first person who's had, who's had a pretentious man recommending a Ben Lerner book to me. <laughs> um, and I loved what he said, where he was like, what can we do about these men? Right. But it was interesting because I did feel a little when he was speaking, like he was talking about performing language and language as a performance. And I, and if, if he is Adam, which to a degree he is like, you could see the ways in which he was also performing language. Like he was saying things in complicated ways and maybe some of the things that he was saying could have been simpler, but the complicated way. So my instinct was sometimes, wow, that was more complicated than it needed to be. But then when I listened again, it was like, but the way that he said it made me think about something that I never think about in a completely mm. different way. He's very he's a very intentional speaker and a careful yeah. speaker, I think. Mm. What really stood out to you through the course of the interview or or leaving it? Like what are the things that you've been thinking about since you spoke with him? I've been thinking a lot about what he said about time. I think that was my favorite part mm. of the conversation with him. I'm I'm always really interested in art um and in writing about the ways that that our experience of living and our experience of time can be represented because, you know, we have clock time and a sense of linear time. But actually, when we're just walking around and doing our thing, we're sort of going backwards and forwards into our memories and projecting into the future all the time. And so it's quite scrambled in the way we experience it. And yeah. so I kind of really liked hearing what he had to say about that. I liked his point about how novel all novels show time because they have to set up the stakes for the characters. Like they have to paint that landscape. You have to know about where people came from in order to understand mm. how they are. Mm. And the part about memory and about becoming a parent and it being like looking down at a bonsai tree, I, I've been thinking about. Mm. It's funny. I have seen my sisters become um, parents in the past five years and watching them have this huge responsibility and power now, I'm in awe of that all the time. Mm. But also they make a lot of snacks <laughs> and they give a lot of baths and they watch a lot of Moana and like their life is much more entrenched in childhood than mine. They're living both a much more adult and less adult life than I am. I mean, I wasn't expecting to have a conversation with him really about parenting. Um, and for me, that was one of the best bits of the interview. I was really interested to hear his view on what it's like to be a parent. The other thing that stood out to me was the value of autofiction, <laughs> which sounds like, you know, like mm. robot fiction, even though I know it's autobiography <laughs> fiction. Um, because the way that he was talking about Adam in the interview was like Adam is real. I know that when you're a writer writing about anything fiction, like everything is deliberate and every moment has been put in for a specific reason. But he had clearly psychoanalyzed every aspect of the relationships between the characters <laughs> in a way that felt a lot deeper than just a person who had written this book and spent a number of months or years in it. It was like a lifetime. Mm. You know, it was such a unique way to talk about fictionalized characters that must be specific to this because it was him and them and not him and not them. But 
but I don't know. It just made for a better book and it made for a really yeah. rich conversation. And I think that's a reason, that's a kind of defense for autofiction, right? That it's not necessarily just this self-indulgent narcissistic exercise that's like a diary entry that you happen to be publishing as a book. It's actually a form of characterization that where you're using the materials that you know really, really, really well, which is your whole life history and your most primary relationships in it and taking those and and kind of seeing what happens by using some of those elements. Mm, and that that's actually kind of a smart thing to do. It's not necessarily a narcissistic thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Like, like you say, it can be richer. It's what you know best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Grizz, thank you for the interview. I mean, it, it made his books a lot richer. It made, gave me a whole new perspective on his writing. Yeah, well, I'm just glad that I um, that I read them. <laughs> <laughs> One thing before we go, since we recorded this episode, our colleague India Ross published a funny explainer about the OK Boomer meme and the Boomer backlash in the FT. So we've linked to that in our show notes. That's it for this week. We would love to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can chat with us on Twitter at FT Culture Call, or you can always email the show at culturecall at FT.com. That goes straight to Grizz and me. If you like what you hear, tell your friends about the show. We'd also love it if you left us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. We'll both be back in two weeks' time to talk astrology. We've been Lila Raptopoulos and Griselda Murray-Brown. Culture Call is produced by Lena Prestwood. And our music is composed by Fatim. Uh, and it all came out sharing plates like a, yeah, like with a bunch of strangers. So that was cool. Can you ask me how it was? Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Not very not very good at the whole conversation thing. It's like when Ted Cruz is like, please clap. <laughs> you know? uh, okay, good. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.